This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now just think about how trying recent times have been and continue to be. I know speaking personally that I've certainly found dealing with the conditions that the world has recently been through tough. Coming on top of other things such as bereavement or disruptive major work changes that I've had, separations from those closest to me, it's been testing trying to still be there as much as possible for my loved ones and friends. And I haven't been afraid to reach out when I've needed to. We all need help at some point in our lives, don't we? So if there's something that's preventing you from reaching any goals that you have or is interfering with your happiness, this is where BetterHelp comes in because maybe BetterHelp can help you. BetterHelp assesses the issues that you may be facing and with a vast range of expertise that it has available, specialists in all manner of issues, some of which you may not have locally available to you, BetterHelp matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling one selected that best suits your needs. BetterHelp is available for clients anywhere in the world to use, is a much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling, and even has financial aid available for the use of the service for those who may need it. And just to clarify, this isn't self-help that's being advocated here. For whatever it is that may be bothering you, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, even through to things like sleeping problems, then you can begin communicating with your own personal counsellor in a private and confidential online environment in less than 24 hours. You can schedule weekly telephone or video sessions with them, you can message them anytime you wish, and you'll get thoughtful and timely responses and feedback from them in return. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where from a very cluttered North Wales spare room, I seek out tales of true crime that aren't usually your commonplace headline grabbing ones. They may often be unfamiliar or long forgotten ones. They're often obscure and horrendous tales from all across the UK and Ireland. Now the I being myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast that gives the show its title. It's not a show without you folks who kindly listen in as ever though. So I thank you for that and I welcome you. And I hope that as I'm coming to you today, then you and yours are all good, you're all safe, and you're all well. So we're continuing here with Thriller, and there are some ways to go on this one yet, I tell you. But the next part may be a few days later in coming out, because it's getting to that time of the month where a new Patreon episode is eggbound, and I don't just like to churn any old shit out, you know. They get the same level of effort that goes into the regular enthusiast. Now I'm unsure right now what this episode is going to be about, but if you wish to find out by becoming a supporter of the show yourselves, like new friends Jeanette Burson, Anne, Marg Tomney, KTK, Tony Carey and Miranda Gordon, thanks very much all, it's so very kind of you, then like Daredevil having a browse through a grumble pamphlet, it's not very hard, you just head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, or you can use the link in the episode show notes and it's going down like Chinatown.
quicker than a Covid spike after the Euros, you can be hearing the terrible deeds that make up such tales as the murder of Janie Shepherd, horrors over the holidays, the final straw, or Ripper in the making to name just a couple of the full series worth of unreleased episodes that there are for supporters. And who knows, you may even be waiting goodies coming from me also. So we shall crack on with part three of Thriller in a moment, following a short word from the show sponsor, Best Fiends. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends, a puzzle strategy game that the fun just doesn't end with. Now summer's finally here, and if it looks like the start of The Simpsons outside, we can get out and see people we haven't for a lifetime, enjoy seeing friends, perhaps even take a well-deserved break away somewhere. Then why not take a break with Best Fiends as a travel buddy? Because you'll find it really is the game for you. It's so much more than the same old average. You'll head off to the slug-ridden land of Minutia, the colourful and vibrant little world that the Best Fiends makers have created, and by finding and utilising colourful and useful little characters such as Snap, Moose, Brittle and Buggles, just some of those that you'll meet on your travels, you can use them and their skills to progress through level after level, getting rid of slugs, blowing up beach balls, exploding crates, shells, cages, you name it, it's there, there is all sorts to be found with it. The constant new events, updates and thousands of different levels keep it looking slick and fresh for you to play, and I enjoy it myself because I like a game that makes you think strategically, but is also quite fun and casual enough with it that I don't lose my patience, so I'm almost 700 levels up now in Best Fiends. It's proper my type of game. Why not stay in touch with your friends and loved ones by playing Best Fiends alongside them, sharing your progress on the leaderboard? Or like me, why not just enjoy playing this great mobile puzzle game by yourself, wherever you are? For you don't even need an online connection to enjoy playing Best Fiends. And once you do, then I'm sure you'll be level after level up in it yourselves, as hooked on it as I am. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Right then, like Ken Barlow 30 seconds after meeting a woman for the first time, it's down to the nitty gritty. In the opening episodes of the Thriller arc then, I've introduced you to two real pieces of work, two of the worst and most prolific offenders in British criminal history, who began as far as is known way back in the summer of 1982, a campaign of sexual assault against usually lone women, but not always, across the North London area. The attacks increased in horrifying frequency, three in one night at one point, as did the violence used in them, and it was only a matter of time before the rapists, taller and shorter, we shall continue calling them for the time being, crossed the line from rape into murder. This they did with just two days of 1985 left, targeting a 19-year-old woman, a secretary named Alison Day, who was abducted whilst heading to meet her boyfriend in the East London district of Hackney Wick, was raped by both, tortured and ultimately murdered by them in the most cruel and callous manner. And now, at least one of the two, loving the buzz and the feeling of excitement that the killing had given him, holding that power of life and death over a defenceless, trussed-up young woman, had gotten a taste for it. It was the right thing to do, 
he had claimed at the time. No woman was now safe, for it was only a matter of time before the pair would do it again, which they did only a few months later, but this time they branched further afield than their established hunting ground, and this time the victim was a child. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including that of a sexual nature and involving a child, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for part three of the Thriller arc for an episode that I've entitled Operation Bluebell. For this part of the Thriller arc then, we head this time 30 miles away from Hackney Wick and almost four months after the horrific murder of Alison Day to the UK county of Surrey in South East England. For those listening who aren't from the UK, and Surrey may as well be on Mars to them, it's one of the more affluent areas of the UK due to its commuting distance to London at its northeast. It's England's most wooded county. It's where the earliest reference to the game of cricket comes from, from the mid-16th century. And the world's first purpose-built motor racing circuit was opened in 1907. And as a county, can claim to have spawned notable people such as musician Eric Clapton, the mod father himself, Paul Weller, chef and biggest selling cookery writer of all time, Delia Smith, actors Tom Hardy, calm your jets ladies, and before Denzel, before Queen Latifah as well apparently, Surrey is the birthplace of the equaliser himself, old Iwa Edward Woodward. It was also, albeit briefly, the home to a 15-year-old girl named Marcia Tamboza, who lived with her mother, father, and two younger siblings in Little Cranmore Lane in the leafy Surrey semi-rural village of West Horsley. Now again, it's not exactly somewhere that I could just zip down to is West Horsley, but I do know a woman who can, and did, and so as in the previous episode, once again, I shall hand you over to the dulcet tones of Jess Carter, the host of the Outlines podcast, to set the scene. You'd never know from photographs that West Horsley is situated only five miles from the M25. To drive through, it looks like almost any small southern English village, surrounded by rolling hills and woodland. It comprises one main road the street, and a series of residential side lanes which lead off of it. The house where Marcia lived is now worth somewhere in the region of £1.1 million. Since the 1980s, it's had some work done to add a series of extensions to both sides. Little Cranmore Lane, on which it stands, is lined with tall hedges and can best be described as picturesque. This is an area where you would feel safe to let your kids play outside. When I drive up the lane, a middle-aged man emerges with a dog from one of the houses. He looks at me in the car for a little while. This seems like somewhere where everyone knows everyone else. A place where strangers would stand out. A pretty girl. Marcia had been born in the Netherlands on the 22nd of March 1971, 
the eldest child of Albert Jan and Marika Tamboza. The Tamboza family had led somewhat of a nomadic lifestyle due to Albert Jan's role as a civil engineer with the UK exploration and production branch of the oil and gas company Shell, which, point of interest, by revenue was last year measured as being the world's fifth biggest company, and had already lived in several countries across Europe before in the spring of 1984 finding themselves posted to the UK. Marcia was gifted academically, and by the time the family had arrived in the UK, already spoke English fluently. She was enrolled at the American Community School in Cobham, some five miles away, and although Marcia was described as being a shy girl and somewhat of a wallflower, she took to the school like a duck to water, getting involved and quickly making many friends there. By the turn of April the following year, she was happy and settled enough in the Surrey area, and following her belated birthday party which was held in the second week of that month, photographs taken at which show a strikingly pretty, yet almost serious looking young woman, Marcia began looking forward to the end of the week, as she was heading off on a school trip back to the Netherlands that weekend. By the time Thursday the 15th of April 1986 had arrived, the day before she was due to set off, Marcia was excited enough to plan to head out after school that day to go and get supplies for her trip, specifically wanting to take some British sweets with her, good old 80s sweets like jawbreakers and refreshers, wham bars, Highland toffee, that type of thing. So at 3pm when she was collected from school by her mother and after heading home to quickly change and have a light snack, Whilst her mother took Marcia's younger sister to the nearby Wicks Hill Livery Stables for a horse riding lesson, Marcia decided to set off herself and to cycle the mile or so to the neighbouring village of East Horsley, because East Horsley had a shop there with a much better selection of sweets. Heading out then at 4pm, a black leather Jordash purse placed inside a plastic carrier bag that was slung from the handlebars of her bicycle, Marcia left the family home, and for once in her life, she was what you could consider disobedient. The Tambosia family were all keen cyclists, and it was a pastime that they did together as a family quite often, finding it a great way to explore and familiarise themselves with the area that they'd come to live in. Because of this, Marcia had come to know the locality fairly well in the almost year that she'd lived there although her family had instructed their children never to take any shortcuts when cycling alone, preferring them to keep to the main roads and drumming a sense of road safety into them. Shortcuts like the well-used Cinderpath, a track less than a mile in length that runs alongside the Portsmouth to Waterloo railway line and that separates East and West Horsley. The shortcut that Marcher perhaps so excited about her trip that this excitement overruled both her obedience and her caution, was about to take that afternoon. And one that Jess Carter was kind enough to visit for the episode, so once again I hand you over to Jess to describe as only she can. The drive to the railway bridge when Marcia took her shortcut to East Horsley takes no more than a couple of minutes. The majority of buildings which line the street are residential. There's one pub, the Barley Mow, and the bridge lays a short hop out of the village, and next to it is the start of the Cinder Path. The path is concrete, 
well signposted and surrounded by low vegetation and trees. To your left is the slope up to the railway and a series of metal fences. To the right are weed-lined fields and copses of trees. Past a bridge, a little way up the path, you find yourself walking next to a wide open field. On the other side is new-looking green metal fencing. As you reach the field boundary, you are at the place where the tripwire was laid, and the back of the field was where her bicycle was found. On your right is a woodland copse. All along the route, wild violets and bluebells line the path, and I notice that they cluster between the trees. I remember that when Marty's body was found, there were reportedly bluebells all around. They're late this year, and they punctuate the walk with constant reminders of why I'm there. On my way back to the car, I take notice of how many lone women use the path. They walk dogs, or push buggies, or go jogging down the route. Some are around my age, in their early thirties, and others older. It is almost unbearably sad that a place which seems so safe for women could have been the location of such brutal violence. What really struck me from visiting West Horsley is how gentle it seems. When Martyr's father was posted in England, I can't imagine that he would have had any fears about bringing his family to live there. You might be close to London, but the feel of the place is affluent and rural. I can imagine that the impact of the murder on the residents of the village must have been immense. Cycling out of Little Cranmore Lane onto a road in West Horsley known as The Street, Marty cycled in a northeasterly direction up past West Horsley Garage, a passerby distinctly remembering the turquoise trousers, black scarf and blue cagoule combination that Marty was wearing as she cycled past. Before only a few minutes after she'd set off, she had arrived at the entrance to the Cinderpath track and had turned right onto it at the entrance just before the railway bridge. Although she'd been instructed not to cycle in such locations alone, as we've said, and although it became quite secluded in parts, bordered by woodland and the railway, it was a relatively short distance and a shortcut that was well used by commuters and dog walkers. So she felt she was safe enough to do so. There would always likely be someone about to assist her in an emergency. Indeed, there were people on the path that afternoon as she shortly before 4.10pm approached East Horsley and as they saw her approaching them and they sidestepped to allow her to cycle past on the path, Marcia would undoubtedly have said thank you to them as she passed by, this being the nature of the polite girl that she'd been raised to be. She may even have smiled at them for their courtesy. Them being a tall man and his shorter companion. Some 15 minutes after this, a local man named Anthony Mabbott was walking along the cinder path from the direction of West Horsley, when at a point where the path bends around to the left, opposite a field adjoining Lolsworth Wood, which is part of the estate of the Duchess of Roxburgh, he came across a length of nylon cord stretched across the path at chest height and tied between the chain-link fence 
and a post that was opposite it. Various sources describe this differently as string, twine, rope and even fishing line, but the best researched source that I've used for the episodes describe it as nylon cord, so that's what we shall go with. So quite bemused by this, because what purpose would this serve after all, except it being done out of devilment just to hinder people, Anthony untied this cord and continued on his walk. By 6.30pm, Marika Tambosia and March's sister were back from the stables and were surprised at first when they couldn't get into the house as it was locked up and Marika didn't have a key. Vexed at first, but then concerned to find Marcia not at home, Marika headed next door to the home of the Tambosia's neighbour, Ted Figuera, to use his telephone, thinking that Marcia could be at the home of some Dutch friends who also lived in West Horsley. But after telephoning these friends, only to be told that no, Marcia had not been there, Marika's concern grew into alarm and she wondered where her eldest daughter was. Marcia was a conscientious girl and not one usually prone to throwing caution to the wind, being out without leaving word where she was going, and her school was far enough away to mean that there were few friends who lived close enough for her to head out to them and visit them at that time. So in growing desperation and requiring assurance and support, Marika then contacted her husband, Albert Jan, who was away overseas on a business trip at the time. At his urging, and it going to be her next act anyway, Marika then contacted Surrey Police to report her daughter as a missing person. As police responded, a search of the West Horsley area began for the missing girl, spearheaded by her mother and assisted by friends and neighbours of the Tambosia family. All streets, copses and farmland in the area were scoured, which progressed towards the East Horsley area when results in these drew a blank. By the time darkness had fallen, with no sign of Marcia, the family were beside themselves with panic, and Albert Jan was constantly on the telephone from his trip, ready to get the next flight home to be with his family. The search had by this time also made it as far as the cinder path separating the villages of West and East Horsley and the surrounding lands of Groveland's farm, and volunteers and police had begun making their way along it, looking into fields and copses that ran the length of this, and at 10.30pm, a member of the search party, Groveland's farmkeeper Vernon Flux, scouring a field at the edge of Lolsworth Wood, discovered a bicycle, some sources claim propped against a tree, others claim that it was flung into bushes at the edge of the woods. A distinct Dutch-made brown-coloured bicycle, with light blue straps across the rear carrier. It was not locked, the chain still wrapped around the crossbar, with its key still in the lock mechanism. It was also in direct line of sight with where the cord had been discovered lashed across the path that afternoon. By this time it was pitch dark and no trace of Marcia could be found in the area, despite searchlights being brought in, so the area was cordoned off and a police presence posted nearby ready to resume the search at first light. Early the following morning, at 8.30am, police officers came across two gamekeepers from the Roxborough estate who had been up at the crack of dawn out shooting in Lawlsworth Wood and telling them about the inquiry when officers asked them if they'd spotted anything out of the ordinary. 
they were told that some ways back in the wood, towards an area of it known as fish ponds, they had seen from a distance what looked to be like green fertiliser sacks. Taking police to the spot to show them, the search for Marcher came to an abrupt end and the largest ever murder investigation in Surrey, codenamed Operation Bluebell, a name coined from the flowers which carpeted Lolsworth Wood and which Marcher was found laying on, began. Shortly afterwards, the head of Surrey CID, Detective Chief Superintendent Vincent McFadden and Detective Superintendent John Hurst arrived at the scene. Detective Superintendent Hurst described years later. It was probably the worst uh, killing I'd ever seen in my career. She had been savagely raped, uh, subjected to brutal head injuries and strangled. The murderer uh, tried to destroy the body by burning and it was so horrendous that everybody was absolutely devastated and upset by what they saw. I was of the view that there was no way that we could ever give up in attempting to catch this man. And I actually said at the time that if it cost £2 million, it, we would still have to find him. Uh, it was that important to me uh, and everybody else on the team. Marchie was found lying on her back, still clothed but it's somewhat dishevelled, her legs at various angles and her turquoise jeans and underwear pulled down slightly. Severe lacerations to her scalp and face showed that she'd been severely beaten with a heavy blunt instrument. Some sources claim that this had even fractured her skull and one of her socks had been stuffed into her mouth whilst the ligature was around her throat. Again, several different sources variously claim that this ligature was her own scarf but it is most commonly described as being her own belt which was hanging half loose around her neck. Her hands, still in the mittens that she'd worn, had been fastened behind her back, tied around the wrists and thumbs with what was found to be a nine-foot length of a distinct string, and an attempt had been made to destroy March's body by setting it on fire, or at least parts of it, evidenced by visible burns to the body, burnt tissues that surrounded March's private parts, and a series of spent matches that surrounded the area where the body lay. The body was also covered by a scattering of twigs and dried foliage, perhaps in an attempt to conceal it, or perhaps even an attempt to add fuel to the fire that had been attempted to destroy it. Although the significance of it was not realised at the time, a piece of stick also lay against March's body, which was assumed to have been used as an accelerant for burning her. The carrier bag containing a black, crisscross patterned flap over fastening Jordash purse, which had held some £25 trip spends in cash and a Dutch bank card, was missing. About an hour later, a team of forensic scientists arrived at the scene, accompanied by examining pathologist Dr. Roger Ainsworth and forensic photographer Ken Williams. By all accounts, a bit of a pioneer in the field of forensic photography. Mr Williams took a thorough photographic record of the crime scene, both still photographs and a video record, and after death was certified, the post-mortem was reportedly even delayed to allow a revolutionary laser technology that was capable of detecting fingerprints on skin to examine March's body. It was determined at the post-mortem that March had been raped and cause of death was due to asphyxiation 
caused by strangulation with a ligature. She'd also received four to five blows to the head with a heavy object, which had possibly rendered her unconscious while she was garroted, and one of the bones in her neck was found to have been broken, which Dr. Ainsworth didn't think had been caused by the strangulation, but instead considered that it could have likely been due to a blow of some sort, possibly a karate chop. Now Marcia's clothing did yield some important forensic evidence. Scientists were able to determine from semen stains found on her lower clothing that her rapist, her killer, was of blood group A and further that he was a secretor. But by using a then pioneering test to measure an enzyme in the blood known as PGM, this blood grouping could be narrowed down even further than this as the test could divide people into 10 distinct categories. Analyzing the samples, forensic scientist Ann Davis was able to establish that Marge's killer fell into one of three possible categories from the 10, these being PGM1+, PGM2 plus 1 plus, or PGM1 plus 1 minus, which meant in effect that on this blood grouping alone, investigating officers, should they highlight a suspect, would be able to eliminate four out of five of them. It's pretty good for the time, eh? They also had another fabulous clue in the string that had been used to bind Marcia's hands. The nine-feeter string was found to be a rare variety supplied solely for industrial usage called Somyarn, which was spun from paper, and the only company that manufactured this was a company called Somic, based up in Lancashire. Now a string expert from the company, he must be a right laugh in the pub, mustn't he? He was able to determine that the piece used to bind Marcia was between 80 and 90 microns thick, enabling him to determine that it had been made from materials that the company had not used for the previous four years. And further, that due to the width of the string being between 17 and 18 millimetres, it had come from what is known as an edge strip, meaning that when the string is cut, the pieces at either end of the block are always slightly over or undersized. The length of the piece suggested it likely that Marcia's killer was in possession of a full reel of this somyarn, rather than just a unique bit of it, and taking all these factors into a combination, the reel added up to an incredibly unique ball of string, which if found with an identified suspect, would be crucial evidence to tie them to the killing. By this time, a 120 strong team was working on Operation Bluebell, which was being run out of an incident room at Guildford Police Station, and the public response, angered at the horrific death of a young girl, had been tremendous. House-to-house inquiries in the East and West Horsley areas and the surrounding villages had been undertaken from the Friday, and that rapidly provided police details of several sightings of a man by separate witnesses that seemed to be that of the same person, a man that became the primary person of interest in the inquiry. Firstly, at 5.30pm on the Thursday evening, although he was too far away from the witness for a clearer description to be gleaned, a dark-haired man in blue was spotted stood in a field behind Lolsworth Wood, and whose behaviour drew attention as he seemed to be crouching down and looking into the next field which led onto the residential area of Oakwood Drive, an affluent cul-de-sac in East Horsley. 
Then, at 6pm, a resident of Oakwood Drive noticed a brown-haired man, dressed in a blue jacket and trousers, climb over a barred gate that led onto a path that skirted her home, coming from the direction of the fields that border Lolsworth Wood, and walk down the road. Two other residents of the street turning into here from the B3209 Ockham Road South a minute or so later noticed what was likely the same man and remembering him as he looked dishevelled and had a patch of mud on his right shoulder sticking out like a sore thumb in such an area. The man had also conspicuously looked away as the car drew level with him. Now Ockham Road South is the road that leads northwards to station approach then on to Horsley Station. And it was here, at 6.07pm, that several witnesses reported seeing a very similar man, similar in general description and clothing-wise, hurrying across the station footbridge, getting down to the platform just as the 6.07pm Waterloo train was pulling off. Waving his arms about frantically, the on-duty guard had graciously signalled for the train to stop to allow the man on. When this man had gotten on the train, he sat down in a carriage that was empty, bar for two girls sat together only a couple of seats away from him. Though the girls got off at Effingham Junction, the next stop, the man stared at them so intensely while they were on the train, for one of the girls was later to remark that had she not had her friend with her, she would have been compelled to switch carriages, so unnerved was she by him. It was indeed for this reason that they'd gotten off the train. So, in such a relatively small geographical area, these are likely to be sightings of the same person. He was spotted in the vicinity of where March's body was found the following morning, and around the crucial time, for in an unnerving parallel with the murder of Alison Day, March's watch was also found to have stopped at 5.35pm. And had he been hanging around the cinder path for days beforehand, a strange incident that was subsequently reported to police that had taken place there on the Monday, three days before the murder, seemed to suggest that he had. A middle-aged woman who was walking with her dog in the direction of West Horsley, having just come from the medical centre on East Horsley's Kingston Road, where the cinder path begins, was accosted by a man here who had jumped out of bushes and performed what she described as a war dance. She'd not been attacked or harmed by him, but was left unnerved by the strangeness of it, and as the man ran off, the woman actually turned and retraced her steps back towards East Horsley. She was later to describe the man as being about 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 9 inches tall, of slim build with collar-length dark hair, having several days' growth of stubble, and wearing a blue anorak and blue trousers, of course. By five days after Marcher had been murdered, the incident room had received well over 500 calls and had had as many information forms submitted, it all being entered into the home system that had been introduced only the previous year and used here for the first time in a Guildford murder inquiry. And the response from the public had been so good that Detective Superintendent McFadden was quoted as saying, I have to say that in more than 20 years, I have never known such a spirited public response to an appeal to help solve the murder. We now have four separate definite sightings of the man we want to trace, 
and last night's exercise on the trains has given us even more information. Now, we want to involve everyone living in the area. I thought it would be ideal if residents received a request for help with their morning paper. Now, it had already been placed in by news agents, but police officers now posted a presence at the entrance to Horsley Station aside a large appeal poster describing Marcher and an appealing for information, passing copies of the Guildford Times newspaper to commuters which contained a written appeal from Detective Chief Superintendent Vincent McFadden for people to come forward and assist with the inquiry. It followed a team of 80 detectives who the previous evening were questioning commuters on every London Waterloo to Guildford train in an appeal for any witnesses who may have seen something or someone, from the carriage windows as each train passed the spot where Marcher had likely been ambushed by a killer. It was one of the lengths that detectives involved in the hunt for Marcher's killer would go to. A team had even searched painstakingly through thousands upon thousands of discarded train tickets in an attempt to trace everybody who had been on that 6.07pm train and although they found dozens of tickets that potentially could have been the one purchased by the man seen frantically dashing to get onto the train, fingerprint examination of these revealed none to have been handled by someone with a criminal record. So, wanting desperately to keep the momentum of the investigation going, when each of these angles had been chased up, now was the time for a crime watch reconstruction. Jurassic Park. So horrified were Crime Watch producers at the murder of Marcher that a reconstruction and appeal on the programme was sanctioned immediately, and it was the lead appeal on the edition airing on Thursday the 22nd of May 1986, just over a month after her death. In a reconstruction voiced over by Nick Ross, who should surely by now have a podcast of his own, just imagine Nick Ross narrating British murder cases of interest. Wow, well what that, eh? All of the points of the case that I've described thus far were covered. Marcher leaving home on her journey, the cord tied across the footpath, the sightings of the man in the field, in Oakwood Drive and running for the train were in there, as was this incident with possibly the same man jumping out and scaring the woman shitless with his war dance. Now as a slight aside here, long before old editions of Crime Watch were available for us to browse to our heart's content on YouTube, this clip with a man jumping out and startling the woman, and a link to it is of course in the episode show notes, so have a look yourselves. Well this clip was one that I vividly remembered from when I saw it initially when it was first aired, and I was just 8 years old at the time. My folks were pretty liberal, what can I say, made me the enthusiast that I am today. And it stayed with me that did, although I didn't associate it with this case until many years later because it proper scared the life out of me as a kid, the bizarreness of it. Now interestingly, it also features as number two on a list of top scariest crime watch moments on a YouTube vid that I found. Most of which I found when I watched it to be from cases that I've covered at some point either here on the regular show, or in Patreon episodes by the way. And I was kind of glad to learn that it wasn't just me who was terrified by this as a kid. In fact, I think the only thing that was scarier than Crime Watch back in the day was either the first time that the Hulk changed in the TV series or the intro sequence to Tales of the Unexpected, which used to proper make you fill your pants with shrill. Well, it did for me anyway. 
but I digress. The Crime Watch appeal prompted reportedly some 156 calls from the viewing public, including a woman who had reported previously being attacked in the same area, although no more specific details concerning this were available. There were also appeals to trace a man who had been issued a ticket at Cobham Station, a couple of stops further down from Horsley that police wished to trace, and reports of a mystery man calling himself Davis, who that on the day of the murder had deposited two carrier bags containing clothing and personal belongings in a left luggage locker at Guildford train station. The bags contained trousers, shirts, underwear and socks, a pullover and a razor. There were also several transport magazines, several newspapers and a copy of the morning advertiser dated on the day of the murder with this clothing, but that the man had still not been back to reclaim seven weeks later, running up a bill of some £42. Intriguingly also, a police officer from Cambridgeshire had also contacted the studio to report that he'd recently received a report of string being tied across a footpath beside a railway line and that the person who had reported this, oddly, matched the general description of the man in the artist's impression wanted in connection with March's murder. A similar man had also been sighted around the Cambridge area. Now these were just several lines of inquiry that were generated by the information that was filtering into the incident room, and ultimately, all of these aforementioned points of appeal were never to be connected with the murder. But one call that the studio did receive that was, was a report of a man on the 6.07pm train that Thursday evening, whose behaviour was so unnerving that it had prompted a woman to get off the train at the next stop, which is most likely describing the incident with the two girls who had been spooked by the man who had rushed onto the train, and who some months later were to go on to assist in giving an updated artist's impression of the man to police. We shall of course get to that in a later episode. Now it was at this point, deep into the hunt of Operation Bluebell, and shortly after the Crime Watch UK reconstruction of March's final moments had aired, that Detective Chief Superintendent McFadden was to receive a telephone call that was to drastically change the scope of the investigation. The call had come from Detective Superintendent Charles Farquhar, the officer in charge of Operation Lee, the hunt for the killer of Alison Day, five months before Marcher and almost 30 miles away in Hackney Wick in East London. In the hunt for Alison's killer, Detective Superintendent Farquhar and his team had been examining scores of previous other attacks in the London area, looking for any similarity, and had not come across any previous murders where the use of such a murder method had been employed in a lengthy trawl throughout records. So, feeling strongly, yet helpless, that Allison's killer was likely to strike again before he was caught, an alert was set up for any attacks nationwide involving similar circumstance, victimology, method or a similar location etc., to be passed on to the Operation Lee Incident Room in Romford Police Station. It was seeing the report of the murder of Marty Tamboza in neighbouring Surrey that caught his eye, and he got in touch with the Operation Bluebell Incident Room in Guildford. In a documentary that aired two years later, Detective Superintendent Farquhar, Detective Superintendent Hurst, and Detective Chief Superintendent McFadden 
All told of that telephone call and its results, which are repeated here, led by Detective Superintendent Hurst. Well, about this time, I appealed to Crime Watch UK for help, and as a result of that programme, a lot of very interesting information came forward. But what was very crucial was that a police officer um, investigating the murder of Alison Day contacted my boss, Vincent McFadden, with very important and vital information. I asked him how his victim had died, and he said she had been banged in the head three or four times. Asked me how hers had been killed, and I said, well, she's been strangled with a ligature. But the strange part, and we've never let this out to anybody, is a tourniquet. And he said, well, how do you mean a tourniquet? And I said, well, a piece of wood put in through the, the, the knot in the neck and twisted. And uh, I can hear the silence now. The penny dropped that a piece of wood that was leaning against the body of Marty Tambosa, instead of being used as a, an accelerant to burn the body, as I first thought, clearly was part of a tourniquet. Um, we then called the pathologist to a conference and Dr. Venesis was able to examine Marjorie Tambosa. Her body was still available. And it was his opinion that the two girls had in fact been murdered by the same person. As described, it was all there. Blonde teenagers, items pushed into the mouth, the relatively small geographical distance between the two, the railway in proximity to both, the rapes, the same method of restraining the hands and the very distinct, unique method of strangulation. By Wednesday the 4th of June, a meeting was held at the Royal Surrey County Hospital Mortuary, attended by the senior investigating officers of each operation, as well as the examining pathologists in each case, Dr Peter Venesis and Dr Roger Ainsworth, respectively. Dr. Venesis was now given the chance to examine Marcia's body for himself. Aside from the broken bone in Marcia's neck, the similarities in circumstances between Allison's and Marcia's death were all too apparent for him, and both pathologists were soon to agree that each murder was the work of the same killer. And that wasn't all. Both senior investigating officers of Operation Lee and Operation Bluebell now convinced that the same man was responsible for both murders, joined their team's combined efforts to examine further possible links, and were especially specifically struck with details of a rape that had occurred in June 1984 at West Hampstead Railway Station, an attack during which the victim's clothing had been cut to create bonds and the hands tied behind them. The blood group of the rapist in this case was also that of an A-secretor, so there were identical hallmarks of both the Allison Day and the Marcia Tambosa murders here, and this West Hampstead rape was one of the 27 attacks between 1982 and 1985 that had been identified and linked by Operation Heart. Could a mass rapist have crossed the line and now become a double killer? Following discussion with Detective Superintendent Ken Worker, the senior investigating officer of Operation Heart, which was that week scheduled to be scaled down after more than a year without success, although it had continued looking through its list of Z-Men A-secretors, 
The additional link was confirmed and police now believed that one of the rapists who had been terrorising women across the North London area had now become a double sex killer, responsible for the murders of Alison Day and Marcia Tamboza. By Saturday 7th of June, the link was felt strong enough that Detective Superintendent Farquhar was quoted by the press as saying, We are dealing with a psychopath without feelings. He obviously has an inclination for blonde, attractive young ladies, as the two dead girls were. Now, at this time also, the inquiry teams of Operations Hart, Lee and Bluebell were liaising closely with Hertfordshire Police as well, due to a missing persons report that worryingly bore many of the now familiar hallmarks and circumstances that suggested strongly to them that their man may have struck again for a third time. But I'm jumping the gun a tiny bit there, because this Hertfordshire case was merely a missing persons inquiry at the time, and one that we shall look into in a later episode. On the 13th of June 1986, Detective Chief Superintendent McFadden chaired a press conference, where he announced that the resources of Operations Hart, Lee and Bluebell were now being pooled as one to create Operation Trinity, which as we've said, was to become the biggest inquiry since the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. So, when each of the three inquiries were linked, it seemed that the strongest line of inquiry there was, was to work down the suspect pool of the Z-Men list, which 20 officers from Hart were still working through at the time. Find someone on that list who was short and fair-haired, the rapist's description, and they would be scrutinised that much closer, and find one of these that also had a roll of the distinct string that had been used to bind Martia, and clothing that fibres found on Alison Day's clothing matched, and boom, now we're talking, there's your killer. But there was no way of simplifying this at the time without simply working through the sizeable list, for there was no way of knowing just how far down the killer, if he was on it, just how far down he was. I mean, he might even be as far down on it as number 1594, mightn't he? Today, such an investigation would be that much more simpler, with the National DNA Database and the revolutionary DNA profiling techniques that police have available. For remember, this is 1986. DNA is proper still in its infancy here. It wouldn't be too long until it was to nail Pitchfork, granted. And as an aside, it's unbelievable that that shytalk is being released on parole right now, isn't it? But the science just wasn't quite there at the time Trinity was founded. However, Trinity was to be groundbreaking as it was the operation that was to be the first accepted use of another, now commonplace investigative tool the police have available to them and do often utilise. But that's something else we shall touch in a later episode, because it's a marathon thriller is, not a sprint. Now as we did with Alison's case in the previous episode, what I shall do, armed with the benefit of hindsight and the full tale researched to bits in front of me, is to paint here now as best I can a picture of March's final moments, a picture that it took police more than a decade after her death to glean exactly. 
I shall of course use sensitivity whilst doing so, but I won't for a second neglect bringing to you the full extent of the horror of what took place on that lonely footpath that Thursday in 1986. Alison's horrific death was harrowing enough to have described and depicted, and whilst I'm not making comparison or trying to lessen the former's death in any way, shape or form, but with Marcia, I felt an extra sense of shock and anger and revulsion and pity whilst researching, for we're talking of the horrific death of a child here, a 15-year-old girl. What happened can be pieced together as best as follows. So Martia, just about confident enough with her bearings in the area, the confidence and local knowledge that it takes you a while to gain when you move somewhere, set off from home that Thursday afternoon and took a chance. Her mind on her upcoming school trip and the English sweets she so wanted to take on this trip with her, she'd been told by school friends that a shop in the Parade of Shops on Ockham Road South in the neighbouring village of East Horsley had a much better selection and so decided to head there to see for herself. It was certainly a journey she would have been allowed to take, at 15 being of the age where she was allowed the certain freedoms that come with the responsibility and maturity that you have by that time. But as I said in the onset of the tale, for once in her life, Marty was disobedient. Her mother and father, whilst encouraging their children to enjoy cycling, also promoted safety into them. And although as a family they used the cinder path whilst out cycling together, it was never to be used by one of the children whilst they were out alone. Echoes of who knows how many tragic cases of children being abducted from such locations, all too familiar with the family. But how many 15-year-olds think that they know best, they? It was a short journey to East Horsley via the footpath, just over half a mile and one that Martia obviously felt comfortable undertaking, as I've said before, due to the amount of people she'd passed on it each time she'd used it with her family. And whilst her parents had strictly told her to keep to the main roads if she was out cycling alone, a trip to East Horsley would have meant a lengthy detour down the street and onto the A246 Epsom to Guildford Road, then up into East Horsley. No the cinder path was a much more appealing prospect to her. Wrapping herself up against the slightly chilly April air, putting on mittens and a black scarf, Martius set off from home. By ten past four she'd just passed West Horsley Garage, remembered at this time by a passerby due to her blonde hair, the clothing that she was wearing and her distinct bicycle, and only a minute later was turning right off here onto the footpath. Now there is a slight point of ambiguity here because it isn't certain whether Martia made it to West Horsley shops or not. There were certainly no reported sightings of her there buying sweets. And several sources that I've used to create the episodes claim that the following sequence of events is what happened. It does kind of make a logical sense as well, I suppose. Much earlier that same day, and almost 30 miles away, the taller man had collected his wages from his employer, each Thursday being payday and back in 1986 still handed out in cash in a brown envelope each week and had whilst doing so run into his shorter friend who was employed by the same company but was at that moment off on sick leave and was just in to collect his own wages. The two talked as casually as friends would do 
and then the taller man let slip that he'd found, I quote, a perfect new place for hunting, furthering that he'd recently given a woman there, again I quote, a fright. It took very little for his shorter friend to agree to accompany him there that afternoon so he could show him this great new location for their dark and depraved pastime. The taller man had even promised his friend, you can go first. Isn't that absolutely foul, isn't it, eh? That's the type of mindset that we're talking about here. Later that afternoon then, the two men travelled out of the London area by motorcycle and into the county of Surrey, where after parking up the motorcycle in an unspecified location, they boarded a southbound train on the Waterloo to Guildford service, alighting in the village of East Horsley, just after 4pm. Here, the men then headed down station approach, before crossing the B3209 onto Kingston Avenue, and following this down past the medical centre there onto a footpath that bordered the railway line behind a chain-link fence to its right. Tree-lined on the left-hand side, it was the perfect place for an ambush they considered, as there was no way for a victim to flee, plus the Lolsworth woodland was remote enough to offer several isolated areas. Reportedly, as they were then walking down the path, they became aware of a young blonde girl cycling towards them and stepped aside to let her pass. She possibly even thanked them for doing so. As she did, the look that passed between the two was enough. Remember, these two didn't need words, two bodies with one brain. And considering, gambling that the girl was merely on a brief errand and would soon be passing back that way, the taller man produced a reel of cord from his pocket, telling the shorter one, she'll be back. What goes up must come down. Swiftly fastening one end of the cord around a fence post, the taller man stretched it at chest height across the path and then pulled it tightly through one of the chain links in the fence, creating a tripwire in effect. Both then hid themselves on opposite sides of the path and waited. After several minutes, they saw the girl cycling back towards them and as she slowed down, Becoming aware and mystified at the tripwire now lashed across the path she'd travelled only a few minutes before, the two attacked. The taller man manhandled Martia off the bicycle, whilst the shorter man grabbed her, placing his hand over her mouth. With undisguised menace, he warned her to remain silent and not to look at them, and then began leading her around the perimeter of a field towards Lolsworth Wood the taller man wheeling the bicycle behind them at a brisk pace. At the furthest point of the field from the path, adjacent to Lolsworth Wood, the taller man picked up the bicycle and threw it bodily into some bushes, causing Martia to cry out in fear. This earned her a vicious blow across the face from him and a reiterated warning not to look at them. The two men then guided Martia into Lolsworth Wood then out of it again into a field bordered on all sides by woodland, before stopping, deciding that this was a perfect location for them. Right about the same time that Anthony Mabbott had discovered and removed the cord that was strung across the path. The taller man, who was stood watching on lookout, remember, he told the shorter man that he could go first, after all, Abandoned this and came over when he saw Marcia struggling, trying to resist being undressed 
and undoubtedly used violence against her to get her to comply. Remember how this guy is with any disobedience from his victims. Martia was then savagely raped in a lengthy sexual assault by the shorter man. When the assault was over, the taller man was nowhere to be seen, but the shorter man eventually saw him at the other side of the field and ushered Martia around the perimeter once again towards him and then back into Lulsworth Wood, this time heading further into it, towards an area of it known as fish ponds. There was some remonstration between her attackers here following this about why the taller man had left the two alone and in risk of discovery, with him explaining that he'd merely gone back to hide the bicycle, being seen by a dog walker as he was doing so. Remember the witness who saw the man in blue stood in the field. At this point, Martia either spoke or perhaps even simply cried, the shock of her ordeal breaking through, and the taller man, enraged at this, told her to be quiet once again and then suddenly struck her several times across the head with a large stone that he was holding, knocking the girl unconscious and possibly fracturing her skull. It was equally possible that it was this assault that caused the broken bone in Martia's neck. As she lay unconscious on the ground, amongst the carpet of bluebells, then pulling off Martia's belt, the taller man secured it around her neck and placed a stick through it, telling the shorter man, I quote, That will make it easy for you. We're in this together. It's your turn. I did the other one. You do this one. At the taller man's urging, the shorter man then twisted the stick in a clockwise direction, not stopping until he could twist no further, and holding it until he was satisfied Marty was dead. When he had done so, and had walked back around the field, retracing his steps, he was joined by the taller man, who had just been off to seek out the dog walker who had spotted him, although not finding her. The taller man was excited and jubilant by what had just occurred. You'd swear he'd just won the lottery or something and even reportedly patted the shorter man on the back in sincere congratulations over his actions, telling him, You done good there, I done the last one, you done this one, we're in this together. Almost like a goal celebration or a win at something. There are simply no words, are there? The two men as they had done so so many times before in their foul campaign over several years, now arranged to head back to Horsley Station via separate routes, thus not to draw attention to a pair of men. And as the shorter one set off back out of the woods and along the footpath towards East Horsley, the taller man returned to March's body. Taking a box of Swan Vesta matches from out of his pocket and removing the ever-present tissues that were packed tightly inside also, he then carefully wiped all traces of the pair from anywhere their fingerprints could possibly have been. Items of Martia's clothing, her shoes, the belt, he even wiped down the stone that he had knocked her unconscious with. He then degraded the girl further and inserted the tissues inside Martia's body and may have even decided to completely destroy it with fire, covering it with kindling in an attempt to get it to smolder. He certainly used several matches to set fire to the tissues in an attempt to burn away any forensic evidence that the shorter man may have left on or inside the body, for
for there is nothing from later accounts to suggest that the taller man had raped Martyr himself. Mere rape just didn't cut it for him anymore, really. He was much more bent on killing now. Leaving the girl, who an hour before had merely set off for sweets, just that, to get sweets, and keeping to the code that had kept he and his shorter friends so polished and at large up to that point, the taller man had then made his way back towards Horsley Station, a separate way to the one his partner in crime had taken minutes before. It only being a few minutes until the train that would take them back to where they'd left their motorcycle would be leaving. Now it cannot be established exactly how familiar the taller man was with the area of East Horsley, although recon was always performed on locations for attacks beforehand by the pair, but he now likely set off on the quickest and most direct route away from the body, out of Lolsworth Woods, across a field and over a gate that led onto a footpath that emerged onto Oakwood Drive, which heads onto the B3209 Ockham Road South, the main road that runs through East Horsley, and that which meets station approach. By now, it was most likely 6pm, which tied in with the sightings of a dishevelled, mud-covered man seen by three witnesses in this area at this time, and he may have had to hurry to catch the next train, the distance being against him which would make it very likely that it was the taller man who ran urgently across the footbridge, colliding with two commuters such a hurry he was in, and who just managed to get onto the 6.07pm train heading back towards Waterloo, thanks to the actions of a kindly guard who stopped the train as it was pulling out. His shorter companion was already on this train, albeit in a different carriage, having got on a minute or two earlier and the taller man made no attempt to move through the carriages and seek out his friend, instead being content to stay and sit uncomfortably close to two girls, the only other occupants of the carriage, staring constantly at them and disturbing them so much by doing so that they'd got off before their intended stop. When the train reached the stop near to where they'd left the motorcycle, the two retrieved their helmets from a hiding place nearby where they'd stashed them beforehand and then sped back to North London, now needing to establish alibis for that afternoon. How they exactly established these, which ruse they gave, is unclear, although sources do claim that the shorter man was dropped off by the taller one at a local video store where he was well known, undoubtedly to hire some of the violent horror and martial arts films he was so fond of but more importantly, for people who knew him to remember him being somewhere that he could be pinpointed at that Thursday evening. Trying to distance himself as much as possible from a remote wood near the Surrey village of East Horsley, where he and his taller companion had just left a 15-year-old girl raped and murdered. At the very same time he was establishing his alibi, Marcia's distraught mother and friends of the family were searching around the West Horsley area for her, frantic with worry. Both the taller and shorter man must have read exploits of their latest atrocity in the newspapers over the following couple of days, such a horrific crime being one of, if not the, lead bulletin of every news programme in the immediate aftermath of Martyr's body being discovered. There is nothing reported as to what the shorter man felt about this, what effect it had upon him but it's fair to say that it excited the taller man greatly. 
when they were to next meet and they discussed what they'd done. He'd even told his shorter companion. It's almost godlike, isn't it? Now if someone says something like that about the act of killing, feeling like that, especially after such callous, foul crimes as they'd committed, and by this time twice, do you think they're likely to leave her at that? There's more chance of you catching me watching Love Island. In fact, even before the North London rapes of Operation Heart, the Alison Day murder inquiry, and now Marty's killing had been linked, before the creation of Operation Trinity, this pair had struck once again, less than a month after Martia's murder, and had killed for a third time. Which I shall be bringing the tale of to you in part four of the Thriller Arc, as once again we've reached that perfect time and perfect place to bring things to a halt here. It gets worse, this tale does, doesn't it? I mean, the rapes were horror enough to cover, then Alison's tale upped that, and now with Martyr, what do you even say to such predatory behaviour, such wickedness, to a 15-year-old girl? Harrowing as it is, I do hope that this is a tale you're finding interesting and informative, and I wouldn't blame anyone if, of course, you don't know the case already, then I wouldn't blame anyone for googling it to bits, I know I proper would. If you do, then one account you may come across if you google far enough was something concerning the case that I myself had written for a website almost 20 years ago now, and that I'd completely forgotten about doing until I found it again while I was researching. So there is plenty out there to look up concerning the case, but I'm trying to bring you that bit more here so you won't really need to. And there really is so much more to come with it, for although it's a horrendous tale, and I don't want you to think that I'm sensationalising or glorifying the story any, because the enormity of what this pair did, the lives that they destroyed, well that should never be taken out of context or lost sight of for a second. And I aim to write this with respect and those lives in mind and focus completely, but it really is one of the most fascinating cases that I have ever come across this one is. It has the lot. And bit by bit, it's coming to you. I would love, of course, to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning the episode Operation Bluebell and indeed the thriller arc to date, which you can do so in the thread, specifically in the Facebook discussion group. Although I do ask again, no spoilers, please, if you do know the case well. Or you can do by getting in touch through any of the show's social media links. You know where you can find me. I don't go anywhere, do I? On that note, I shall wrap things up here now and get part four on the grill. So watch for that coming out very soon. I thank you all very much for joining me here today. It means the world that you have as it always does. And all that remains for me to say then is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.